0: Hello, everyone. From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today, we bring you the UK launches post Brexit shakeup of insurance rules, InsureTech investment drops 58% in Q1, and Korean pop stars' apartments seized for non payment of health insurance. I know which story I'm looking forward to. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 115. I'm John Bean. Today's show is a new show where we'll be talking about the most interesting happenings in insurance and insure tech from the past few weeks. Joining me is my co-host and amazingly in the studio with me, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director of Insurance in Google. How are we doing today, Nigel?
1: I'm very well. I can actually physically poke and touch you rather than giving you grief on a microphone for once. Look at that. It's, uh, it's quite surreal. Back to work, back to the office, I say.
0: Surreal and an absolute pleasure. We are also accompanied by some amazing guests. First up, we have Ruth Fox Blader, partner at Anthemis, and welcome back. How are you doing today, Ruth? Can you give us a recap on Anthemis and your role there, please?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. So I am a partner at Anthemis. Anthemis is a sector focused fintech venture capital firm. We are also the most active insurtech investors globally.
0: Very relevant for today's show. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Next up, we're also joined by Jeff Radke, co-founder and CEO of Accelerant. Thanks for being here, Jeff. I think this is a first for you. Can you give our listeners a lowdown on Accelerant?
3: Sure. Well, uh, it is a first. So thank you very much for having me. Accelerant is an insurance enterprise that exists to uh, combine specialty underwriters with sources of risk capital. And we try and do that uh, using uh, using modern technology to be both efficient and highly effective.
0: Great news, and glad to have you on the show. Uh, and last but not least, we also have Brian Fritton, CEO of Havoc Shield. Thanks for joining us, Brian. What should
4: our audience know about Havoc Shield? Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Havoc Shield's a cybersecurity program built specifically for small companies. You can think of it a little bit like what TurboTax did for tax prep. We're doing for SMB cybersecurity. And uh, we entered the insurance market last year because we saw some problems with uh, the ability to coach small applicants through what is a growing set of requirements in insurance, as well as do the homework behind those requirements uh, with companies that don't have a security staff. So we're here to help.
0: Well, thank you all for joining me. Let's get on with the show. So the first part, UK launches post-Brexit shakeup of insurance rules. So, Rishi Sunak, the UK Chancellor, has launched a consultation on radically changing the rules governing insurance companies. The aim is to allow them to invest tens of billions of pounds more in infrastructure, including green energy. The government argues that the reform of the EU Solvency II rules and their replacement with British regulatory regime could unleash what Prime Minister Boris Johnson has called an investment big bang. There's three changes proposed. The first would mean easing solvency requirements by reducing the so-called risk margin by 60 to 70% for life insurers. The second would be a reform of what is known as matching adjustment. And the third is to cut the reporting and other administrative burdens, including doubling the thresholds at which insurers are included within the solvency regime. I'll start with you, Nigel. Can you give us a quick overview of Solvency 2 and how much of an issue this was in the previous legislation?
1: Well, I'm definitely not the expert on Solvency Two. I miss my old my old team at Deloitte. But I will say it feels like one of the longest-running activities that I've seen in insurance for for God knows how long, that date has been pushed and pushed and pushed. And it's semi-refreshing to see the changes coming in, but probably frustrating at the same time, given that insurers have spent millions, tens and tens of millions of uh, pounds and so much energy and effort to get Solvency II or become Solvency II compliant. It was EU legislation that's a 1,000 page plus long, and we are nearing our way to completion. But to get these sorts of changes now, I think worries me quite, so- well not worries me, I guess it's, uh, I can see the insurers sitting back and saying, not again, or here we go. But I think some of the changes that have been proposed are certainly starting to allow you to ease some of that burden that's been put there in the first place with capital that's locked up accordingly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I certainly know from my time working in consultancy, there always seemed to be a Solvency 2 programme running, and it had been running for for years and years and years. I can understand the the weariness of going through this again. Um, Ruth, do you think insurers have been hamstrung when it comes to investing in green infrastructure or the need to release this capital?
2: So I think that insurers feel hamstrung by capital requirements. I haven't heard many clamoring to invest in green infrastructure, however. That would be interesting. I guess from my perspective, a couple of things. We have a few companies in the portfolio that have looked at how using better data can help insurers revisit capital reserves Uh, with regard to solvency requirements, there's a company called Balance Re that we invested in, which is using some really interesting, you know, emerging technology solutions to help life insurers to understand, you know, what they really, what capital they need to reserve and and if they, if there are ways to get out of reserving some capital. Another company that that I've invested in is a company called Home Tree. This is a home services company, which, you know, on the face of it might look like a boiler replacement firm, but is sort of deeply interested in decarbonization of the home and the micro infrastructure of the UK and how, you know, green living will not only happen at the kind of macro infrastructure level, but also really be about, you know, the types of appliances and heating systems that individuals have in their homes. And so, we're very interested at Anthemis generally in climate change and the relationship between climate change and insurance. Nigel and I have talked about that many times before. You know, this to me feels like maybe a quite opportunistic talking point, you know, that we're going to let insurers sort of release capital in order to invest in infrastructure projects related to climate change. Who's going who's gonna to disagree with that? The devil's in the details. I'm sure that by and large, insurance companies are, as you said, you know, likely to feel less hamstrung, happy, eager to take advantage of easing of capital requirements. We're in a very interesting macro context uh, for doing that. On one hand, we have interest rates rising, so uh, there there are there are some interesting opportunities for placing capital. It's not the low yield environment that, perhaps that that we've been in for the last decade. And on the other hand, you know, lots of volatility. So is this the right time? Who knows?
1: Just as a sidebar though, I do think the the link back to ESG, and we've talked about ESG and climate so much on the show, given the insurers both opportunity to make changes here early on is really interesting. It's not any level of it's not just winding back the requirements, it's winding back the requirement for a very specific cause that I think no one is better place to actually make an impact other than insurers.
0: And do you think? I mean, Jeff, I'll pose this one to you. Do you think ESG and investments in green infrastructure is this something that's new that's coming about, or do you think this is being accelerated with rising oil prices, rising electricity prices? Is there a real push towards this ESG and releasing capital
3: for these investments? I hope I'm not the odd man out. I, uh, from my reading of the news, it was reduce the solvency margins, et cetera, et cetera. And then magically, these investments were going to go into the green infrastructure. Uh, I didn't see any any requirement or any incentives that would produce that investment. Am, am I off on that?
0: No, I don't think. Uh, maybe it's to your point, Ruth, about... It's a nice story if you're actually focusing on ESG.
2: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that there's massive relevance for insurers to uh, and the insurance industry to do everything that it can to stop climate change. And to its credit, the insurance industry has been an industry which has been deeply committed to that. Uh, for far longer than many other industries, divesting of fossil fuel companies in their portfolios and their asset management portfolios and things like that. And that's obviously because climate change is probably, you know, the biggest risk to uh, just sort of risk to the insurance industry in general. The, you know, we, we cannot sustain the loss ratios that climate change is going to have on uh, property and casualty portfolios. So there is a, I think that there is a logic, I think to Jeff's point, you know, how do you ensure that that capital which is released goes into those investments? Your guess is as good as mine.
0: But it's a very good point about the loss ratio. If they are gonna be watering down, well, I say watering down, but if they are gonna be reducing the so-called risk margins, um,
3: who is that for life insurance. Oh, for life insurers No, that's a very good point jeff it, it all hangs together if you if you look at it sufficiently cynically enough.
0: it does because i was going to say who does this fall on what could this mean for consumers are consumers taking the risk but you're right if it's life insurance but do we think from a life insurance perspective there is an added risk for consumers here i would
3: think not to ruth's point um there there are specific companies and and just companies in general uh getting better and better and smarter and smarter at using data to estimate the cost of their, the cost of the obligations associated, associated with the products they're selling. And I, I don't believe that, any, that reducing the solvency margin on life insurers is in any material way going to increase the risk to consumers. There are several backstops in in the UK and in, every, I think, every other sort of major insurance market that would protect consumers. So I don't think that falls onto, that's not some hidden liability showing up on consumers' balance sheet, at least in my view.
1: I, th- I think it's always going to be very well measured for for everyone, without doubt. But I also see insurers sitting there saying, you've got all these targets set there for us. We can't do everything. So you've got to unlock something for us to allow us to go and do uh, investment in ESG or 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 elsewhere some somehow. so this this feels like a relatively safe mechanism to do so whilst easing the burden and, and the third point about easing the administration no no one's ever going to complain about easing the administrative
3: burden ever uh, of running their business day in day out and the reporting. Do you know the uh, threshold to to be subject to solvency too? I you not off the top of my head no N- neither do I. It's so small it's never mattered. And uh, I work in a company that's three years old and it 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 mattered it, we had to do solvency due the first year we were in existence. So I don't know what doubling nothing. I, I think the threshold is so low that doubling that threshold will have very little impact on paperwork.
0: Well, it's a good question. And and Brian, just to close this off, do you think these changes go far enough? Or is there more that can be done?
4: I think there's always more that can be done. I think it's a bit of a wait-and-see attitude in my mind with the changes, you know, with everything sort of moving into a territory where there's unknown risks and more volatility, uh, I think we'll see more attention on it.
0: I agree. And I think... UK isn't the only one looking at this. So in September, Brussels unveiled its own proposals for changing solvency too. It said it would deliver a short-term capital boost of 90 billion for European insurers. And this triggered concerns in Whitehall that the EU was moving faster than the UK. So I'm not going to descend into a Brexit debate, but wasn't the point of Brexit to be able to move quicker than the EU on these issues. But I'm going to leave that as a, as a statement rather than a question <laughs> as we move into our next topic. Next, we're talking about InsurTech investment. So it drops 58% in Q1, yet the deal flow stays high from the InsurTech Insider. So global investment in InsurTech dropped nearly 60% to $2.2 billion in quarter one from a record-breaking $5.3 billion in the prior quarter, according to the Gallagher Reinsurance Global InsurTech report. Despite the drop in investment, the report does also state that the number of deals remained historically high. InsureTech's closed 143 deals in Q1 2022, which is the same as Q4. So despite the same number of deals, there was a 60% drop. The Q1 numbers follow a bumper year from InsureTech funding, with companies closing a record 564 deals and securing a total of $15.8 billion of investment through 2021. So Brian, do you think the InsureTech industry should be concerned about the drop in capital, even if the deal flow is staying the same?
4: Oh, I don't think so. I think... What we're seeing here is just a longer deal timeline in a lot of ways. So curious to see what, what Ruth thinks, of course, but in my world as a venture seeking this type of investment, you know, there's still a lot of powder out there to be had, and there's still a huge focus in this area. And, you know, the, the world's sort of pulling back, I think, from the panic of, you know, a very entrepreneur-friendly environment into more of a balanced environment, and that's elongating some of the deal timelines, but I think the powder and the capital
2: is absolutely still there. To Brian's point, velocity, deal velocity is definitely being impacted, and you can read the data as that impact Things are happening, but they're happening more slowly. I still think that we will do fewer deals this year. I don't think that we're going to eventually catch up. And, you know, I definitely think that there has been a correction, that there obviously uh, in the macro environment is a market correction happening, that that's sort of trickling all the way down. I think that the recent data is showing that it's trickling down slowly. So, you know, the growth stage companies are feeling the pinch far more quickly than. You know some of the the early stage companies and certainly seed stage companies and seed rounds uh, don't seem to be impacted at the moment. But I wouldn't be surprised if you know we do continue to see things trickle down. You know there are a bunch of different reasons for that. I think there is still a lot of dry powder, but if we have a a macro environment, you know where the S and P is at its lowest. that it's been since 1934. There's the biggest drop since 1934. And we have, you know, continued land war in Europe, you know, a pandemic which doesn't seem to be sick of us yet. You know, there are a bunch of reasons why everyone is skittish and there's been loose monetary policy, which has inflated asset prices, and we all are aware of that. So in some ways this correction is extremely healthy. I think that what we'll see and what we are seeing is a flight to quality. So there have been uh, a number of businesses where the unit economics of the insurance businesses have been disappointing and public markets investors have taken a look at those and, and you know, with, it, with a different eye than perhaps uh, venture investors. And there's been some repricing of some of these, I would say, I would call them wave one insure tech darlings. And I think that the wave two and wave three introtech darlings will certainly emerge and that they'll learn a lot of lessons about, uh, you know, kind of how the, the type of thing that public markets investors look at and care about and building more sustainable businesses. I also think it's a lot less pressure on entrepreneurs to be raising rounds at healthy and sustainable valuations. It's, you know, feels great to raise at a super, super high valuation. feels horrible to raise a down round. So, uh, net-net, I think that this market correction was inevitable and probably will be positive for the quality of the innovation in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I think we've seen it a lot, certainly with the first round of the insure techs and, and the share price. What we have seen is it seems to be the P&C sector propping up the wider insure tech industry. Of the 143 deals closed in Q1, 106 were for PNC focused insure techs, equating to about $1.4 billion. Knowledge, why do you think it's the PNC sector that continues to attract the most investment?
1: Firstly, I've, I agree with Ruth on on, on the previous comments. I, I will say the early stage in sure tech darlings, I always get frustrated with treating new companies with age old metrics. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's the age old metrics, or the age old metrics, and we can't change them. But equally, you have to give a chance for these organizations to breathe, to, to learn, to grow, and so much more. So I think in many of these cases, it's going to be time with regards to PNC versus life or elsewhere, the the cycles are just different. The PNC cycle is roughly every seven years for transformation. For, For life, it's about every 40. Our engagement in the PNC sector is significant in that in Europe, we engage on an annual basis. In the US, we engage a lot less depending on where you are, although I think that's changing as well. So the opportunity to impact change and actually disrupt what's there today, and maybe the disruptors are the wrong world, but all, change what's there today is much higher in PNC, whether it's on the distribution, underwriting data or, or otherwise. In life, it's just different. It's just a different, it runs at a different speed. As a net result, there's a slower level of investment, slow level of investment in deals. That said, we have also seen over the years, the likes of Anorak have been on the show, and Bequest, and Dead Happy, and so many others, where, the excitement and attention that was in PNC early on has now started to move into the life sector, and there's loads, obviously, in the health uh, health space too. But in the into the life sector, it will just take time, and it's just a little bit slower. It's it's you know, Dead Happy's mission was to make what happens to your assets after life a more of a happy, and joyous event rather than the sad event. And so that's a, that's a that's generational change, and that's not something that lots lots of people get excited about too often.
0: And I actually think there's there's a huge amount of opportunity. On your point about the metrics, I I do think that's interesting because ultimately they're measuring profit and loss. And I I think there's been a lot of focus on customer growth, but ultimately it boils down to, are these organizations making money?
1: You're actually comparing... Q4 to Q1. Not sure that's the right metric. We should always look at Q1 over Q1 on the previous year. And I think the Q4 or 2021 from memory was a bumper year of investment as well. So it's uh, you come off a real high into a Q1 that's gone, ooh, it's a bit of a slowdown as we, you could argue, Omricon and everything else that came out for the first quarter has just slowed lots of things back down again as we thought we are all emerging out of the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see how this one evolves over the next couple of um. Next couple of weeks and months.
0: I think speaking to somebody who's been through this, uh, looking at yourself, Jeff. Do you think the mega rounds are starting to slow down? And how crucial are these mega rounds to the health of the industry? So there were five in Q1. Accelerant, congratulations, uh, brought in 190 million in Series A. Employment Hero closed out 129 million in Series F. Betterfly raised 125 in Series C. Descartes Underwriting snapped up 120 million in Series B. And Cowbell Cyber closed 100 million. So,
3: Jeff, what, what was your experience of this? And do you think there is a slowdown? So this was our uh, essentially our first round since formation. So I can't really compare it to anything. Um, I can tell you it's much, much slower than any public fundraising rounds I've ever been involved in in former lives. I think uh, I'm going to steal a quote from Ruth. I think it's just page three of the pitch book, you know, the one with unit economics that we all lost about seven years ago. I think now page three is back in in all the pitch books, right? Uh, And here are the unit economics. And I suspect that the organizations, even if you haven't achieved it, right? If the organizations that can describe how their unit economics work in the visible timeframe, I think they'll be fine. Because I think the amount of capital that's been amassed over the past i guess 10 20 years whether it be monetary policy or otherwise that's not immediately going away so i think there's going to be a lot of capital as everyone has said and they'll and it'll be attracted to opportunities that eventually will be able to turn their idea into a profitable business so um i i guess i guess the the round slowed down somewhat, although I'm not sure it was noticeable. I guess what I did notice was a real focus on unit economics and, um, towards the end of the cycle. So November, December, the discussions with, with investors were contrast yourself with company X, who was not a, no longer a darling or contrast yourself with company Y who has problem X. So there, there was a lot of, um, but that was different. That was new. And in retrospect, where everything is very clear, that was probably signals that I, 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 am not sure I picked up, but <laughs> those were probably signals. Just on that, Jeff,
1: is that a level of nervousness, do you think, from the investment community that said, hey, these things aren't working as fast as we wanted? Or and I, I still think this is going to come true. The number of consolidations in the industry, you know, that if you look at, um, Lemonade and Metromire, I it was a great way to go and acquire access to multiple states very, very quickly, never mind about the economics of it, but it was actually a route to get speed. So we've now opened up access to go do something. If you can then go and execute at the right pace, the opportunity is there for the taking. So is it a, I don't know. Is there a level of nervousness on one side and then a level of opportunity on the other, I think, through consolidation?
3: Well, I'll do the first one uh, first. (laughs) I think whether you're a reinsurance underwriter, an investor, just any other kind of human, your natural tendency is, what do they say? You're always fighting the last war. You're always trying to avoid the last set of mistakes that that it turns out you made or your predecessors made. So is that conservatism, I think that's sort of human nature on the first question. On the second question as to consolidation, I think the vast majority of the insure tech activity is not full-stack insurers. Full-stack insurers are the ones that have that crippling delay in expanding geographically because of the regulatory delays, which sort of, at least in my tortured mind, ties into the statistics overall, which is... They get very easily skewed by big transactions because there aren't a lot of big transactions. And I, I think when you look at the summation, you're you're likely to jump to the wrong conclusions. Um, if you, I think the way Ruth described it, she knows a lot more about it than I do. But the way Ruth described it strikes me as the way it's likely to play out. Right, deals are a little longer the big deals are always going to be full stack insurers. There aren't going to be that many of them. I love how they call 193 million a mega deal. I mean, it's just not, right? You could hardly get an insure, uh, an investment banker to call you back if you were going to do a bond offering for that much. So I think things are slowing down. Unit economics matter. And maybe some of the hubris has been let out. I don't know, Ruth. I, I sort of paraphrased you. I don't know if I got it right.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think... I agree with your point about, you know, not getting called back by an investment banker about a bond offering. But at the same time, these aren't investment bankers. You know, venture investors are a different breed. And I think venture investors will continue to look for really exceptional opportunities. And the insurance industry is one of the largest, you know, industries in the world. Uh, There are very few kind of trillion dollar opportunities. It is a vastly under technologized, I don't know if that's a word, made it up, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not digital enough. There's a lot of efficiency. We don't use our data, you know, half as well as we could. We're not using contemporary technology. There's a, just a lot of wood to chop. And so while I recognize um, that, you know, some of the skepticism uh, based on the public markets offerings of 2020 and 2021, which are now largely, by and large, trading below their listing prices, and you know some of the frothiness of the venture market and the f- in general and the fintech market specifically is valid. I think that there's just still so much opportunity. I'm incredibly optimistic, and we also have investors which are far more educated than ever before. You know, we had generalist investors investing in insure tech who didn't really know what a combined ratio is. I'm very impressed by the sophistication of generalist venture investors when they talk about insure tech to me in diligence calls. So, you know, I think we're at a different, a different phase. Uh, again, I think it's a healthy phase and I think that that the the correction and the Consequential kind of flight to quality means that we're all going to see some really, really interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I don't think it's going away. I think it was just because of the record year last year. I mean, you know, even if you look at the early stage funding, the entire year total two point two billion, which is almost as much as all insurtech funding recorded in two thousand seventeen. So, you know, despite the figures being lower than last year, there is still a massive upward trend from where we were three, four, five years ago. So, yeah, I can't see it slowing down at all. That's it for the first section of the show. So we're going to take a quick break. We will be back very, very soon.
4: How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive
1: into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11FS.com forward slash Web3 report
0: to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. Next, insure Tech startup TurtleMint banks $120 million as valuation tops $900 million. Indian insurtech startup Turtlemint has raised 120 million led by Amanasa a Capital, Jungle Ventures and Nexus Venture Partners. The online platform for buying insurance has closed the current financing at around 900 to 950 million valuation. Turtlemint intends to use the fresh funds to expand into new geographies like Southeast Asia, scale its leadership team and strengthen its product line. Founded in 2015, Mumbai-based Turtlemint is a platform that helps financial advisors understand and distribute insurance to their community of customers. So, according to the 2021 report from BCG, India's insurtech funding has seen an increase from a modest base of 11 million in 2016 to 800 million in 2021. So, it kind of tracks along the same themes we've just been discussing. I'll start with you, Brian. Is India one of the most attractive markets for companies looking to expand globally?
4: It's certainly in the crosshairs. Obviously, we're spending all of our time stateside at the moment, but I have heard and seen people be really excited about India, you know, the, the spread of technology into every corner of society there has, I think, laid the platform for newer channels and, and newer products to take hold as you know, everyone around the globe looks to, to mitigate risk. And India is an interesting risk territory. So I think it'll pick up fast as long as, there are good investments made there, and it comes back to you know unit economics and page three of the pitch deck. But also, as long as the government supports that investment, which is a different story than you know what we have in, in London or, or stateside, it's going to be interesting to see what the government does there.
0: And do, do you think, I'll come to you, Ruth, on this one, do you think the government-owned insurance provider stunted the private sector market? In India? Or in general, to be honest.
2: Um, I don't. I don't think we can say that. I don't think that that's been borne out. I mean, I think that when, I, when we think about India, one of the things that always strikes me, and I probably should have looked it up before the show, but you know, Policy Bazaar was the first InsurTech unicorn. That's an Indian company. I mean, I think that this kind of growth and funding is explained by a few things. There's, what are venture investors looking for? You know, it's like great entrepreneur working on a really interesting problem in an enormous market. So if you're a great entrepreneur working on a problem in India, you know you have a really good chance of getting venture investment. And then I think that what's happened over the last year or so is, as we look at how frothy the valuations have gotten, particularly in the U.S., investors have been a little bit more, I would say, less hesitant to go into markets that feel really powerful and and where deal pricing um, has. You know, remained a little bit more in line with uh, the risk associated with it. I made my first investment in a company in India last year, a company called Loconav, which is a digital fleet management software company that sells a lot of other stuff on its platform, notably insurance. And, you know, seeing the growth of that company and the potential for growth in, in that market, the potential to enter other emerging markets. As you see in this story, you know, the proximity to Southeast Asia, to sub-Saharan Africa. You know, these are just this is this is very powerful. If you get it right, you build something enormous.
1: The Indian market, we've talked about South Africa in the past with the Cadogan Society. We've talked about Betterfly a minute ago, which is Latin America's first unicorn right now. We've talked about Asia quite a lot with Ping An and Zong An over the years. You've got a population of just under 1.4 billion people penetration here is always going to be low. What worries me about insurance moreover, we talked about it on the previous story, is adoption and education. And if people don't understand it in the first place, how are you ever going to get adoption? So I think the education of what the products are, why they're there for you and so much more is huge. And actually a small percentage of a big population actually is a decent sized market to go after. So I do think we're going to see huge growth in these new markets, as, as Ruth's just described. But equally, we can't expect to take westernized products and just plonk them into new countries and expect them they're going to work. They don't work that way. They have to be suited for the markets that matter. I remember this work uh, in India many years ago, where we had to understand the, the cultural differences and what actually mattered most to consumers. As opposed to taking the products that were here and just assuming that we're going to work in the same sort of way. Uh, that includes business models, it includes uh, the cultural of, you know, the cultures around what matters most to the individuals, was it them, was it their families, and so much more. Um, so I think the opportunity is he- here is huge. They will leapfrog some of the mistakes that we've made, I hope, and jump through and in the same way things like M-Pesa did, they'll jump through some things that we never had to go through in the first place. So I I think the opportunity here is is huge. The scale and the size of this is is gargantuan. Just look at what's gone on in Ping An and Zong An previously. I think you can see quite quickly how digital solutions enabling agents with better education and insights can actually drive higher volume. But but policy size will never be big.
0: No, and you can see, I mean, if if, if you look at what they did, I think they took the traditional products and said they don't work. Now they've got over 2,000 almost micro products, specifically targeted at kind of rural. I think it's quite a clever strategy um, that Turtle Mint are going for. They've not gone down the same route as kind of Policy Bazaar and Paytm in terms of going direct. And they're actually going down this education route, which is, you know, it's quite interesting. It's almost the WeFox model, what they did in Europe, which is actually direct isn't just the only answer. Jeff, do you think you know? Can other countries learn from Turtle Mint's success in sort of rural communities? I don't know if this is something that would this model would carry over to the U.S. Could, you know, can
3: this be applied?
0: Do you think in the over in you know in the states?
3: No, I I think they're fundamentally such different markets. The rural market in the U.S. is actually relatively heavily serviced by intermediation and and, and general insurance product uh, availabilities relatively high.
0: If they're serviced, a- Is the lack of education, do you think, in insurance products, is is this a place where it could operate? Or do you think that actually they're very well serviced and very well educated?
3: I think they're well educated on uh, what we would describe as the property and casualty risks, especially on the commercial side where we spend most of our time at Accelerant. you need a license for virtually anything or everything, right? And uh, almost always insurance requirements come along with that. And we may mutter and complain a little bit about those insurance requirements, but generally they act as a very quick and sharp form of education. Uh, You know, thou shall have uh, this kind of, these kinds of insurance. Um, I think perhaps yeah again i think we're talking about uh apples and oranges uh, is my perception um i've always i've always thought about and heard others think about uh india as being this uh sort of this perfect spot where size geographic uh proximity um this this enormous untapped rural market but by the same time quick willingness to adopt technology and it's really where I've always heard it said to me that India is where the next seven big ideas about, especially distribution, are going to be discovered, right? The stuff that doesn't work in the US or doesn't work in the UK, but would work in uh, over so many millions and billions of people elsewhere.
1: I, I do think on that, though, you've got opportunity to bring stuff back from India, from Africa and elsewhere. We've talked about micro-insurance quite a bit over the over the years and shows on on this. And I do think back to the utility of insurance, if I'm allowed to use that word, the whole concept of micro, whether it's gig economy, whether it's moving from A to B, but whether it's embedded, that whole micro concept that's been developed so well and so efficiently in these countries through necessity could be brought back to more developed countries and actually start to to chime in equally, you've got you know we talked about betterfly, their partnership with with Chubb shows how. I'm going to say traditional carriers can partner with new organizations to create these new opportunities. So, if I can't service them directly, I'll service them through a
3: partnership. For sure, for sure. And I think we all know the biggest constraint to episodic insurance in those established markets is regulation, right? So, I think to the extent that it's successful in another country, uh, it's always going to help with the argument with the regulators, for sure.
0: I'm going to I'm going to ask pose a question to you, Brian, because I think cyber is definitely probably a product line that, you know, has education or needs education. And, and, you know, a lot of small businesses, a lot of people are probably underinsured or not adequately insured in this space. Do you think there's lessons to be learned in terms of education and bringing over these models to the US, especially for your product line?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and for sure, I think SMBs are, are underinsured. And I think on the the policy side, there needs to be education about what does good coverage look like your business in cyber liability. I think that doing the homework. Uh, I, I would ascribe it to the success of security awareness training in the security industry, right? So we've done a better job in the security industry of training humans what a malicious email looks like and to not share passwords and and that sort of thing. And that has had a provable effect on you know the types of companies who do that training in their ability to defend against and weather uh, attacks and i think that we need the same when it comes to what the requirements in cyber mean uh, which are priorities for different types of policy holders and again i think that we're going to have to do a better job of being assistive in nature to those applicants and to policyholders um, dealing with changing requirements not just sort of slam them on the table but have to um you know, help walk them through uh, educating their firm what they mean, but also doing the homework behind them and, and supplying an infrastructure of you know investable companies that, that help them do that.
0: And have you found a, a way to reach out to these these clients and these customers? What what have you found that works in terms of education?
4: Uh, I think it makes sense to put the broker in the driver's seat. Uh, you know, these are trusted advisors that the majority of these small businesses want to work with. Um I'm not uh, uh, putting down the efficacy of a self-serve, you know technology solution at all. but I think when it comes to education, you already have this relationship with your broker, uh, and it makes sense to me that we help educate that you know, distribution layer, and that's going to you know be a better conversation, a more tailored conversation uh, for these applicants. And we can certainly, You know, supplant that uh, and and bolster that with self serve types of technology that, you know, um, take effect after that conversation happens.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, certainly, I know it's a topic very close to Nigel's heart is education, and, and we do have it lined up for a future show. Moving on, Lloyds of London prepares to fight over picking up the tab for the 10 billion Russian seas' planes. So, those who aren't aware, Russia has seized four hundred foreign leased planes in Moscow following the invasion of Ukraine. Sources told the Telegraph that Lloyds of London has hired global law firm Clyde Co to investigate whether the insurance claims made by the aircraft leasers, which amount to a total of ten billion US dollars, can be denied. AirCAP, the world's largest leaser, has also geared up for a fight, reportedly hiring Clifford Chance as counsel to negotiate on claims worth three point five billion. I guess the first and obvious question is: uh, Ruth, should Lloyd's of London pay?
2: I think you know I'm of the old-fashioned opinion that people should do what is what they've committed to do in a contract. But absent having access to those contracts, I don't. I can't really make a determination. Clearly, both sides think that they've got you know a decent shot at least dragging this out and and settling for something in court. It's a, just a terrible situation, and uh, we—no one predicted this. Even real experts on the region and people who really have their ear to the ground um, didn't predict and couldn't—maybe couldn't have predicted uh, what we're seeing right now. This kind of feels like a sideshow in the context of of you know everything else that's going on over there you know, I think that there's, we've seen a few, quite a few scandals of um, insurance companies trying to sort of worm out of things which seem to be included in policies, whether it was during the pandemic or, um, or, or, you know, in, in the context of this war. And actually, there is a cost, I think, generally, even if These things are not legitimately included in policies. I feel like there is a cost to a brand sometimes of looking a little bit like they're on the wrong side of the consumer or the wrong side of history. So, you know, all of that stuff is being factored in, and there's probably the assumption that the news cycle is going to move very quickly and ultimately it's going to get hashed out in the courts. And in any case, Everybody's going to get a little and be disappointed, but it's not going to be quite as cataclysmic as the cost that it could be were they to pay it upfront right now.
1: I think, so I think you've nailed it. You, j- j- I mean, it's it's reputational damage no matter what. We as consumers, you know, I remember being in my old job and my mother in law's partner would always say, Oh, I see your company's in the news again for bad news. And whether it's right or wrong, it's just in the news for the wrong reasons and it gives us, gives us a bad reputation. I feel something like this, about your point about the BI cases in insurance during COVID. Again, you had some folks, depending on where you were, trying to do the right thing, others fighting it, ending up in court and just frustrating consumers. Now this is obviously a huge a huge number here. I'm not sure what's influencing the the hesitation. Is it the number that's stopping people? Or is it actually the letter of the law as per the contract that none of us have seen on this on this uh, podcast, but is it the letter of the law that says actually we believe firmly that you are entitled to it or are not? And I think that's really important because maybe there's something there that says actually contracts for certain things like this sh- should be more transparent. And imagine if they were all transparent and we publish them in the same way that we do legislation. we could go out there and say, it clearly says that you either are or are not covered. But again, this goes back to uh, another comment I had a while back from someone that said, some insurance contracts are ambiguous for a reason
0: i mean it is reputational damage I, I mean most people go to lloyds of london because of the the promise to pay i think they're, they've got greater exposure because they've got the whole whole war and allied perils clause written in by the london market i think to your point which is it is is it the clause itself or the contract or is it the amount i, I can't think it's anything but the amount i mean marsh said that russia's seizure could surpass the September 11th, 2001 attack to become the biggest coverage loss in aviation history. I mean, we're talking about some absolutely phenomenal numbers, but you're right. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be reputational damage.
3: We don't have a Lloyd's representative here, obviously, but, but, but the one thing I, I would say is if she or he were here, uh, she or he would say that they're having a debate about the coverage provided in the contract. Lloyds certainly is not saying that because the number is big, inconveniently large, we're not going to pay it. The question is, is there coverage? I don't think there's any debate that that's the question. Is there coverage? And it sounds like either they'll come to a settlement or there'll be some sort of adjudication of whether whether there's coverage under the contract. But uh, the way- Because you, you said precedent, the, uh, right? Uh, a little bit. And also the way you said it sounded like Ooh, boy, that's, uh, that loss is quite big. I think I'll contest that one.
1: But going back to Brian's world, I remember the uh, attacks in London, the terrorism attacks. They tried to make some claims about the uh, access to property post-closure by the police. and I believe that was limited or not paid out at the time because there was no physical damage to your property. So they're almost hanging on the wording, which obviously is what we're talking about here, and using that in a way that felt wrong. It felt like, we were wrigg- we felt like we were wriggling out of things to the general consumer, as opposed to uh, doing the right thing, given the circumstance, same as non-denial of access in COVID. It wasn't any physical damage. It was non-denial through, um, not being able to, but, but the national lockdowns world over.
3: I, I don't know how you'd sell an insurance policy that would pay off based on how people feel.
1: Hey, we've we just found the new market, Jeff.
3: Yeah, <laughs> what we need is a reinsurer <laughs> <laughs>
1: and unit economics, unit economics to make it work. How are you feeling?
3: Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, I'm,
0: not, I'm not suggesting that Lloyd's will regain on any contact, any kind of contracts, but the, the numbers are quite eye-watering.
3: Yeah, well, th- that's true too. That's true too. Okay, qu- a question for you.
0: You know, it, we started with should Lloyd's pay? What happens if we get the planes back at the end of
4: this? Yeah, no, my my one thing is that's that's where my head was going at is. We could be sitting in this case and the government incentives that we have to get those planes back you know those those negotiations can happen and really at any time and in my head you know that that has an immediate and direct and probably kind of a weird impact on what the damages end up being uh so that's kind of the only thing i had to say about it but it's, it's going to be a weird one if that happens.
2: I ain't flying in them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, there, there is always an argument of ultimately who pays. And one of the things that was stated was that as flying has got safer, those premiums have come down, leaving the industry unprepared for, for the events of the loss of hundreds of planes. And since February, the cost of insurance for aircraft seizure and other war related risks has tripled, according to the insurance broker, Marsh. Uh, insurers typically must cover the cost of individual accidents and equipment failure or damage to an aircraft. So, I think ultimately the question of who ends up paying is it always kicks back to the consumer, which is a real shame in this this instance. Nigel, do you think this will lead to a serious shakeup of the aviation industry?
1: Serious? No. We'll shake up possibly, but every event that we gain new information from is a new input into how we write, how we word, how we ensure going forward. It's just new insights that we have. As we get more data, as Ruth talked about earlier on, we have more insights into climate, into weather, into Accident into EV. It's just new data.
0: Agreed. Couldn't agree more. And I, unfortunately, I think the increased costs are a reality of the war in Europe, which is obviously just terrible. Uh, for more impact on the invasion of Ukraine on the insurance industry, you can go and listen to episode 113 of InsureTech Insider, where we discuss this topic in depth. And I'm hoping it's not one we have to discuss much longer. Now it's that part of the show where we round up some of the other big stories that we just didn't have time for, but we still think they deserve a mention. Nigel, do you want to get us started?
1: Absolutely, let's go. So, over to Europe. Italian B-Safe Group secures 1.2 million euros for its tech for the travel industry. I'm actually excited about this one, given that it's a... Clear sign that travel is back on the cards. So I'm quite excited for this. The round was jointly underwritten by CDP Venture Capital through its acceleration fund and Prana Ventures. Every traveler has the same fear when booking a trip cancellations and loss of money. Hotels and accommodation providers also have the same worries, and Be Safe was created precisely to remove the stress while at the same time providing the accommodation structures with a guarantee of payment thanks to a rate with cancellation insurance included. Uh, Again, another example of embedded insurance added to that that travels back. It has to be good for everyone. John?
0: Yes, and another story. Tokyo Marine, a Tokyo-headquartered insurance corporation, launched its 42 million corporate venture capital CVC fund, dubbed Tokyo Marine Future Fund, to invest in early-stage startups around the world. The Palo Alto-based CVC fund will write checks worth between $500,000 and $3 million into seed and Series A rounds across a number of sectors. Yoshi Yoshida, who leads the CVC fund, said, there are often cases where Tokyo Marine sees very promising companies or product ideas that are too early to support as a customer. The fund has partnered with the World Innovation Lab a Silicon Valley and Japanese venture capital firm with roughly 1.5 billion assets under management to drive the CVC's investment strategy and process. I think this story just really highlights what we were discussing earlier in the show that InsureTech, InsureTech is here to stay and investors are looking to engage earlier and earlier at Seed and Series A funding rounds. Now onto the final and the highlight of the show. Over to you, Nigel. This is unbelievable. BTS's... I
1: don't know who BTS are. That's how old I actually am. But BTS's Jimin's apartment is seized for non-payment of health insurance. Big Hit admits a company error. Uh, BTS's agency, Big Hit, addresses reports about Jimin's apartment being temporarily seized owing to unpaid health insurance premiums. That feels quite excessive. I mean, Jeff's face, if you can see it right now, is kind of screwed up going, you've taken my house because I couldn't pay my Anyway, uh, on April 24th, Korean news outlet Biz Hankook reported that the National Health Insurance Service had seized his apartment on January 25th, as the singer had not paid his health insurance premiums. I'm not even going to go into this. It feels like a case of, I missed my bill, whoops, and they've gone into a little bit of an extreme situation to get it back. I have no idea whether or not they actually managed to get it back. Big Hit Music responded with a statement saying the company had made an error. Feels like the old days of not paying for my domain name and someone else nicking it, which we all saw years and years ago too. Let's not dwell on it. Jim, I hope you've your apartment back or you've bought
0: another one. John, back to you. Thank you, Nigel. Well, that wraps up the news for this time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? We'll start with you, Ruth.
2: So you can follow me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is Fox News. That's F-O-X-E underscore news.
1: The best handle ever.
4: I didn't, I didn't expect that one. Brian, yourself. Yeah, I do not have as cool of a Twitter handle, but also Twitter. Uh, just first initial, last name, B written, and the company's at Havoc Shield.
3: And Jeff, how about you? I think uh, the Accelerant website, Accelerant.com. Fantastic.
0: And uh, Nigel, this one always makes me laugh. I'm going to give you today Mr. Inshortech at
1: google.com. Do you really have that, Nigel? I really have that, Jeff. You can email me at Mr. Inshortech.
3: Would you like to sell it?
1: No. <laughs> you can also find me on Peloton at Mr. InsureTech. <laughs> okay.
3: Well, no, you can't sell it now. It's a whole theme. You have to you have to keep the I'm branded. Set. <laughs> I'm branded. Copyrighted
0: Mr. Inshortech. And finally, you can find me at uh, John Bean on LinkedIn, or you can contact us at 11FS. I'd like to say a big thank you to all of my guests. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and also helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Insure Tech Insider, or you can find us on Twitter at Instech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Have a fantastic rest of the week and goodbye.